Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We are reading now the second portion from Genesis Bereshit, Parshat Noah, the Parsha about Noah. And it's a fascinating passage that has many interesting and challenging uh, episodes in it. And I'm gonna do just a little survey because I, I want to touch on a variety of issues and connect you with some important themes. And I also want to underline one theme, the theme of covenant, which um, is revealed for the first time here in this Torah portion, but it becomes an ongoing theme throughout the scriptures. It's impossible to fully understand what it means to be a committed disciple of Yeshua without having an understanding of covenant. Because Yeshua inaugurated the new covenant, that's right. And you must grasp the history of covenant, what it means to God and what it means to you. So we'll try to introduce some important ideas from this Torah portion. But I wanna start in Genesis chapter six with a principle about Bible study and interpretation that can be very useful to you. And we're gonna look at Genesis 6, verse 17, just that one verse, and I want to encourage you to jump to conclusions. It says this, the Lord speaking, then I myself will bring the flood of water over the earth to destroy from under heaven every living thing that breathes and everything on earth will be destroyed. Okay, let's make a basic mistake together. Let's act like this is a complete statement and that it represents everything we need to know about what God is planning to do. If we do that, we can jump to a couple of conclusions. Number one, every living being, what? This history is going to be destroyed. Number two, the whole earth will be destroyed. You got that? Many people take a, an incomplete statement in the scriptures and treat it as if it were a complete statement. They develop extensive ideas and even theories and speculations by doing so. It's important to learn how to protect yourself from this. And one of the ways that you learn is by recognizing when a statement is complete and when it's incomplete. In this particular passage, verse 17 is completed by the following verse, verse 18. And it starts with this wonderful word, but. And but indicates an exception, right? But... I will establish my covenant with you, the Lord is saying to Noah. You will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. If you made the mistake of jumping to conclusions by thinking verse 17 says it all, then you would reach the conclusion that God is going to destroy all humanity. And the reason you would reach that conclusion is because it seems to be saying that. 
If it were a complete statement, it would be saying it. But it's actually a complex statement that is followed by verse 18 that says, but, here's the exception, Noah, I'm making my covenant with you. Now just imagine that you're Noah and you don't want to wait for God's complete statement. And you're gonna reach conclusions about life, doctrine, etc., your future, based on incomplete statements. God comes to you and says, Noah, here's the news. I'm, go I'm, I'm gonna destroy everybody and everything. You're Noah. Ampersand, pound sign, exclamation point. You're like, it's over, right? It's over. It's over for me. It's over for everyone. What's the cure for Noah? But just wait and hear the rest so that you know what else is going to happen. The Lord says to Noah, but Noah... With you, I'm gonna make a covenant. I'm going to preserve you, and you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Many people make the mistake in scriptures of looking for incomplete statements in order to support the conclusions that they've reached. That's reading the scriptures backwards. You already want to prove something, so you look for something that proves it. Now what if I were one of those people who came to you and said, I can prove to you that God destroyed all humanity and no human beings were left. None. You'd look at me and say, hello, who's talking? You would know better, right? Just empirically. Sometimes empirical evidence, the evidence from experience, is all that you need in order to prove or disprove something. I've used it. it I, I had a rabbi who's trying to convince me not to be a believer in Yeshua. This is when I was a young man, so it was a long time ago. And uh, my parents were trying to get the rabbi to persuade me. And he, he came and he met with me and he said, David, you cannot be a Jew and believe Jesus is the Messiah. And I said to him, actually you can. Because you're talking to one. And he looked at me and I said, if it's impossible, and this is where I got smart alecky. <laughs> if it's impossible, you'd be talking to the air right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, he got irritated. <laughs> and it turned out that conversation didn't go on very long. But I learned something, you need to be able to defend your own self and your positions. And if all you have is to be a smart aleck, that may be what you need to use. But mainly what I want to underline is something, that with our eyes and with our experience, we can verify certain things. 
we know that humanity exists, right? If someone were to say, but I can prove using verse 17 that all humanity has been destroyed and the whole earth has been destroyed, you could say, well, that's not the whole story. Because God saved Noah's life and his family, preserved them, and then used them to renew the earth, right? Because that's what the scripture actually says. I introduce that to you because it's easy to make a mistake of reaching a conclusion based on incomplete information from the scriptures. It's easy to find pieces that support what you want to prove, but if you really want to do a thorough job of establishing what the scripture has to say about a subject, read everything that the scripture has to say about that subject. Now with that in mind, if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter six, and let's read some examples that further substantiate this. Genesis six, verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so he said, I will destroy mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both mankind and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's the first part of the statement. The next part, verse 8, says what? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So do you see the complete statement? The Lord is saying, I'm doing a survey, a general survey, and I'm sorry I made all these people. However, I'm not sorry I made Noah. So I am going to remove from the face of the earth all these who have given themselves to violence and wickedness. But I'm going to be gracious to Noah. Do you see how those are two parts of one statement? And it says in verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with Hamas, with violence. And so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That sounds like everybody without exclusion, right? Without exception. However, it's not. Because throughout the chapter, God is making an exception. He distinguishes Noah, who is a man of faith and righteousness before God, from all the others who have given themselves to violence and wickedness. He makes that distinction. Not in every sentence, this is what I'm trying to remind you of. It's not in every sentence, but it's throughout the whole chapter that he's making that distinction. Now you might say, why are you, why are you beating this point? We get it. I want you to learn to use this principle for all your Bible studies. 
Read widely. Don't reach conclusions with incomplete information. And work carefully to become a student who can rightly handle the Word of God. And so that means become familiar with the Word of God, deeply familiar. Understand what it says and what it means and how, uh, how to apply it. So I want to encourage you to do that. As we're beginning our annual reading cycle, we started last week with the reading of uh, Genesis, the first reading from Breshit, and now we're in the second reading. I want to encourage you, be a student of the Word. Make sure you get one of our new Bible reading plans through the Bible that enables you to stay on track with us for our Torah, Haftor, and Brit Hadashah readings. Uh, each week. Do your best to read before Shabbat and then to read again afterwards and uh, put extra time into reading and to learning about the scriptures. Take notes on the things that you're learning when you're reading the scriptures for yourselves. Write down things that catch your attention and write down questions that occur to you that you want to pursue answers to and then follow up on those. If you do that, it will go quite well with you. So I encourage you, build, build up your uh, familiarity with the scriptures. Become strong as a student of the word. Now, going back to uh, verse 18, the Lord says, but I will establish my covenant with you. And this is an important idea. God is making a strong commitment to Noah and to Noah's family and thus to all of humanity. Imagine if you are the only human being, you and your immediate family, that qualifies to survive. That's, that's a serious selection process, wouldn't you agree? Noah is chosen by God because he's responded to God with faith and with righteousness. And God says, I will establish my covenant with you. The idea of covenant is a very important idea. It's not explained a whole lot at this point, but it's, it's understood. And by the time we're reading the Bible, we should know what covenant means. Covenant is an enduring bond of commitment and love. It is a, an agreement that is very serious and has terms and conditions. Terms and conditions, say that with me. Sure. Terms and conditions. How many of us buy apps? You know, our 99 cent apps on our phones, etc. And it says, do you agree with the terms and conditions? And are you like me where you just flick through it, touch it, and accept it, and go on? How many? And I want to say, is there anyone who bought a 99-cent app who actually read all the terms and conditions? Anybody here? Nah. We just figure, yeah, what can they do for 99 cents? <laughs> Yeah, well, they could know all, they can link into all your privacy, uh, as we found out. Terms and conditions. If you want to buy a house and you need to get a mortgage, do you think anyone will sell you a house without a written agreement? Do you think any bank will meet with you and say, you look honest? 
Here's a couple of hundred thousand for the next 30 years. No, it doesn't work like that. There are lots of details, terms and conditions. The bank wants to know that you have the capacity to pay back the loan, right? They want to know that you have a history of paying back loans, etc., and not reneging. You want to know that the seller actually has the ability to sell you their house. You might not realize that, but when you do a title search and you get title insurance and a clear title, you're verifying, right, Missy? You're verifying that they have the right to convey it to you and that you can get it without encumbrances, right? And there's an entire industry, you can ask uh, Missy about that, she worked in that, uh, if you want to know details of it. When Sandy and I lived in Budapest, Hungary, we had, we had sold our home here in the States and we'd moved all of our belongings to, to Budapest and we never intended or imagined that we would come back to the States. So there was a period where we were thinking maybe we'll buy a house. It was a short period and I'll tell you why. We found out that the, uh, title, the title process for property in Budapest is defective. So you could sell a house, but it could be months before that uh, sale would be recorded. And people knew this, especially people who are very organized, organized crime. <laughs> and it was not unheard of for the same piece of property to be sold multiple times. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, and then where's the owner when you need them? Who knows? And where's your money when you need it? You'll never get it back. When we realized that the system was defective, we just actually gave up on the idea. You want to know that someone has the ability to convey, and you also want to know that someone has the ability to purchase, that that matches up and that the terms and conditions are agreeable. Has anybody ever had a problem with a purchase that they made? And you thought it was covered by the warranty or the promise of satisfaction? Yeah, and then you found out, oh no, it's not. I hope someone from Amazon will be listening to this podcast. <laughs> Because generally I like Amazon for certain things, but I bought an extension cord with a remote on-off switch that was listed as heavy duty and satisfaction guaranteed, and it failed a few days ago in less than 60 days. However, the return period turns out to be 30 days, not even 90 days. And inside the box, in the material that I didn't read, but, but somebody else read, after I bought it and they posted the information, it said, this switch is listed as a temporary switch that should not be used more than 90 days out of 365. Well, I can tell you, I'm not satisfied. I'm just trying to figure out how to get that word to Amazon. And since we have a wide audience, 
<laughs> now I'm just using it as an illustration. You think there's a warranty until. You think you're covered until. Have you ever tried to use your health insurance? And they say, oh yes, that's not covered. <laughs> or oh yes, it would be covered if, but there's no way to meet the if. We all have these experiences of disappointment because the terms and conditions either are not clear or they're not upheld. But the Lord is not like that. You see, the Lord says, you can count on me. I don't lie, I tell the truth. And he makes covenant with us. He declares the covenant. He gives us the terms and conditions of the covenant. And he says, this is really serious. I'm not just, I'm not just having an emotional moment of enthusiasm. The Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And he makes a promise to, to Noah that there will be a covenant. We'll read more about it in just a few minutes, but I, I want to go to Genesis chapter eight, verse 22, because I want to show you something that may be easy to, to overlook. The Lord has a plan, he has an idea in mind, he wants to renew the earth, and he wants to get back to normal. He understands that humanity has made a mess of things, that the violence is so unacceptable and so widespread that, that the general population has just given themselves to violence and will not change. But the Lord wants Noah to go through this process of renewal in order to establish normalcy once again. And it's expressed in Genesis 8, verse 22. The Lord says, so long as the earth exists, sowing time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. You see, we're gonna get back to normal where you have to sow, and then you have to reap. Where it'll be cold sometimes, it'll be hot at other times. There will be seasons, and there'll be night. Every day, <laughs> there'll be a night. And it'll go like that, day and night. These will not disappear. The Lord is making a commitment of, of renewal that is a new beginning, it's a restart, if you will, but the goal is to resume God's continued purposes for humanity, his continued plans for humanity. He's not giving up on humanity. He is pursuing the experiment, if you will, that he began with Adam and with Chava. And now he's doing a restart with Noah and with his family. He's making covenant. He's saying, this is really serious. You, you are going to be committed to me and I'm gonna be committed to you. And the Lord wants us to understand that even in our day, we have a lot to learn about how to live because the world still reveals 
that, that people are given to violence. Violence continues to be a problem. People suffer personal violence and abuse, domestic and family violence. There's the threats of violence. Nations are continuing to make war with one another. There's a need to defend those who are the victims of tyrannies and oppression. And we have to learn how to live together. It's still on God's agenda. It's still one of his priorities that we learn how to live together. And I want to just call out some of the ways that we need to learn to live. We need to learn to live together, not just as individuals all by ourselves. Some people get so cynical of the rest of the world that they want to retreat out of relationship with anyone. But we have to learn how to live together. We need to learn how to live in family as well. We need to learn how to live in marriage. We're living in a time in history in Western civilization where broken marriages have become so discouraging to many people that they just want to avoid getting married at all. But it doesn't solve anything. It just perpetuates the problems. We have to learn how to live in marriage. We have to learn how to live with our siblings. We have to learn how to live with children. We have to learn how to live in society. We have to learn how to live in nations. And we have to learn how to live nations together with other nations. We're not all alike. We don't all think alike. I, I was talking to Sandy this morning and I said, help me remember something. If you want to thumb a ride in America, what do you do? It, how many can do it? Now that's if you want to Uber. If, if you want a thumb, it means you want to hitchhike, right? And how do you do it? You go on the side of the road and you stick your thumb out, right? And you should stand correctly. Am I right? So you wouldn't like uh, point in that direction. And if someone is so kind to stop for you, I don't even know if people do that anymore. However, in Israel, if you do that, you will never get a ride. If you want a ride in Israel, you know what you do? And this is so Israeli chutzpah. You point to the ground where you want the car to stop. <laughs> That's right. You don't do this, you do this. <laughs> True story. Okay, I'll, I'll check one more thing to see if you know how to count. Okay, let's count on our fingers, using our fingers, and we'll count one, two, three, four, five, okay? Now, partner up with someone so you can compare. And do one, and then two, and then three, and then four, and then five. Okay, that was really good. Maybe. <laughs> I couldn't see any of your fingers. If you're in Hungary and you want to do one, you cannot do this. You must do one. One. Yeah, this is one. How do you do two in America? Like this, right? Two? In Hungary, you do it like this. Yeah, so one, 
two. Okay, now here's the thing. If you're in Hungary and you do this, it's interpreted as lazy too. Yeah, we bought twice as many things as we needed sometimes. <laughs> and how many do you want? They say in Hungarian and we go, one, and they give us two, because that signifies two. If you want to do three in America, how do you do it? Hold, hold it up high. Okay, you see, my fingers don't work right. I can't get them to do that. And no doubt it's because I have Hungarian ancestry. <laughs> because that, that is not three in Hungary. Three in Hungary is three. Hungarians, they believe in economy of effort. One, two, three. See how easy it is? Okay, so what's four in Hungary? I'm just testing you. you here's four. <laughs> That's four. What's five? It's easy, five is five, right? But if, if you try to do this, in Hungary, they won't know what to give you. Four is easy like this. Everybody with an opposable thumb can count to four, and even people without thumbs can count to four. <laughs> it's important to understand what things signify, what they mean, and what the conditions are. Uh, what, what does one thing mean to another person? What does it mean to you? I remember talking to some Spanish-speaking people here in the congregation and being shocked about the difference between, say, Mexican and Cuban Spanish, or Dominican Spanish, and another kind. And certain words that can be terms of endearment in one version of Spanish are insults in another version. Same thing with uh, general expressions in, in language. Years ago, we helped bring 100 Ukrainian old-time Pentecostals to America. And one of them was having an anniversary. They happened to be sitting up in the balcony of the non-denominational congregation we were part of, all 100 of them. And in order to honor them, uh, we just stood up and we were clapping. And then some people in their enthusiasm started whistling. Later we found out that was an insult to, to whistle. Yeah, it was just a, a rude thing to do. None of us meant to be rude. We just didn't know any better. Sometimes what you, what you think is good is not good to the other person. In a covenant, in a covenant, God wants us to know what he considers good and what good would be from our side so that we can really come together and come strongly together. And he wants us to learn how to live in a way that's good for people. And in order to do that, we have to learn from God what's good. 
If we just learn from other people, it will not be enough because people have different opinions. They come from different cultures. They have different experiences and different values. But God is unchanging and he desires that we learn how to live in a way that's pleasing to him. We have to learn how to live with him in order to learn how to live with other people. This is so important. And many people think, no, you can just learn through general morality and ethics, but it's not true. We actually need to learn from God how to live with God and how to live with people. Let's go to Genesis chapter nine, verse eight. Look at a few verses here. God spoke to Noah and his sons with him. He said, as for me, I'm hereby establishing my covenant with you, with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every wild animal with you, all going out of the ark, every animal on earth. This is very interesting. Sometimes people ask, do you think there'll be animals in heaven? And you know what my answer is? I like to think so. I want to think so. And I like the idea that, you know, Yeshua comes on a horse. That sounds good, right? And I like the idea that Caleb was named Caleb, which means dog. And if you think Caleb's in heaven, there's at least one dog in heaven. But here God is saying, I'm not just going to make covenant with you, Noah, but with all living creatures who are with you. And together you'll repopulate the earth under a covenant with me, all of you. And if I read the scriptures correctly, it's not just the clean animals, it's the unclean animals as well. Isn't that interesting? There are animals that may not have been given for food, but God made covenant with them. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you that never again will all living beings be destroyed by the waters of a flood. But remember, when it says all living beings, not all living beings were actually destroyed, not literally all, right? Because Noah and his family and all the animals with him were not destroyed. So he's using it in a general sense. I will establish my covenant with you that never again will all living beings be destroyed by the waters of a flood and there will never again be a flood to destroy the whole earth. So it's not that there won't be floods. It's that God will not use a global flood in order to uh, render judgment on the face of the earth. That's what he's promising. And then he adds something. Here is the sign of the covenant I'm making between myself and you and every living creature with you for all generations to come. I'm putting my rainbow in the clouds. It will be there as a sign of the covenant between myself and the earth. Now, I really like that. I, I actually like rainbows. How many of you like rainbows? And it's not because I think I'm gonna meet a leprechaun with a pot of gold at the end. <laughs> It's because rainbows are cheerful and they have that effect on me, they make me happy. If you're driving with kids in a car and one of them spots a rainbow, their spirits are always uplifted. 
same for me. I love double rainbows, especially. They are utterly awesome. It's hard to be sad while you're looking at a rainbow. If a child draws a rainbow, it generally indicates a hopeful uh, and positive attitude on the part of that child. Rainbows make me happy. I love the beauty of a rainbow. The aesthetics, I think, are so interesting. God Almighty says, I I wanna show you something. I'm making a covenant with the whole earth, and here's the sign of the covenant. You know, what will it be? The Lord says, here, watch this. And there's color, refracted color, that is so beautiful that it, it captures our attention and no matter what else we may have been doing, we want to get a glimpse of that rainbow. It connects us with something. God is not only creative, he loves beauty. He creates with beauty. And he not only creates with beauty, but he creates in interesting ways, in fascinating ways, and in ways that touch us emotionally. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's right. And it turns out that rainbows can connect to your heart. They can actually make you feel better. When I see rainbows, I stop thinking about other stuff. I don't know about you, but they just have a positive effect on me. And I'm grateful to the Lord that he says, it's a sign of my covenant. So the whole earth is not going to be flooded. Hallelujah for that. Let's go then to Genesis chapter 9, the last passage we want to look at, verses 20 and 21. And verse 20 can be translated a number of ways, but follow this translation. I think it's a, it's a good one. Noah, a farmer, was the first to plant a vineyard. I like this. I like that, that Noah takes this initiative. You know, what can we do? Well, let's plant a vineyard. And so he plants the vines, and that implies some orderliness and some rows of some sort. And then he cultivates those vines. It takes time. You know, this is a short sentence, but it's actually a process of of preparing the land and then putting the vines in, the, um, the rootstock in and then letting it grow and and trimming it and then coming to harvest time, the first harvest, and who knows how many more after that. And so the grapes come. And and clearly there must have been grapes prior to that because he didn't originate grapes. He's planting a vineyard with grapes. So he's the first at this. And I love the fact that he takes initiative. He's being creative. He's doing something that hasn't been done something that he's never done before. But with that initiative comes something else. When you take initiative and you do something you've never done, you are at the peak of your inexperience. You don't know what you're getting into. Verse 21 tells us what he got into. He drank so much of the wine that he got drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent. It wasn't good for him. It wasn't good for the family. It was an embarrassing moment and a difficult moment. 
But this helps us understand something, that when you are doing something for the first time, you won't always know everything you need to know about what you're doing or the implications of what you're doing. And for that reason, you will make mistakes, mistakes of inexperience. Those mistakes can be tragic, they can be humorous, they can have big or small consequences, but it's inevitable if you're doing things for the first time that you will have to discover what excellence looks like and what are the mistakes that you can easily make. Now, when I was, when I was a child, my parents taught me something that was very useful, it just wasn't true, but it was so useful and it had to do about, with drinking. And this is what my mother would say. Jews do not get drunk. Gentiles get drunk. Yeah, that's what she taught me. And so in my time of growing up, we had alcohol around the house, but nobody drank to excess, nobody got drunk. My mother could not handle much drinking at all. If she drank even half a glass of wine, she just went to sleep. <laughs> she didn't do anything else. It was just immediate uh, cure for insomnia. So at Passover, she couldn't even drink a glass of wine because she would fall asleep in the Seder <laughs> during the first cup. <laughs> and so her habit was to like take the smallest of sips but they, they taught us something, and it wasn't true, but it was useful. Jews don't get drunk. It turns out, I found this out later, Jews do get drunk. <laughs> there are Jewish alcoholics. There are Jews who uh, abuse alcohol and, and can't set limits for themselves, or can but don't. And there are Gentiles that don't get drunk. So it's not true the way she said it. But the impact of her message to me was an important impact. It was, it was one of um, value in, in, a, in a sense, an ethic. You can drink, but don't get drunk. Don't allow drinking to overtake you. It's a good lesson, really, for any of us. Now, some people can't drink at all because their, their bodily makeup is such that if they drink a little, they drink too much. And other people just don't like to drink anything. But those that do drink should take a lesson from Noah, which is don't drink and get drunk. Now, the definition of drunk is important. I had a, a friend who was an alcoholic in uh, the former Soviet Union. His definition of drunk was quite different than mine. His definition was when you can no longer physically lift the glass and get it to your mouth. <laughs> That's when you're drunk. That's when you're pickled <laughs> and about to pass out. It's way beyond drunk. But I, I want to close with this idea from this passage. You can read this story about Noah and all the other things. You can read about the judgments of God on the wicked of the world and act as if this is about other people. But it's much better to act as if it's about you and yourself and others around you who you care about. 
When we read how Noah, a good man and a righteous man, did something out of inexperience and foolishness and naivete that, that resulted in drunkenness and some family problems, instead of being critical of him, we can say, you know, that's like me. I have problems too where I do things that I don't understand the implications of. I do things and I have to learn how to do them correctly and how to fix the undesirable consequences and effects of my inexperience. And when we, when we recognize ourselves in the scriptures, then we can expect graciousness from other people. What would you want in your inexperience from other people? You would want them to be gracious to you. I'm trying, is what you would be saying. I'm really sincere, I'm trying. Um, you know, cut me some slack. And in the same way, what would you want to give others? Graciousness, right, and patience. It's not so good just to be critical of everybody who through inexperience are making mistakes. Much better to say, that's the way we are. We have to learn together. And when we learn to be forgiving and we learn to be patient, we learn to be kind, we learn to understand, we learn to stand with people who are learning about life, then we can actually learn to live together and have much better, happier, and more effective lives together. So I wanna encourage you, see yourself in Noah, and see Noah in you. Every one of us has a bit of Noah in us, the good and the foolish as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us and renewed us. We thank you for the new life and the rescue and salvation we have in Messiah Yeshua. Thank you for the new covenant that you've given us. You've established not only a covenant with Noah, but as well with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with David, with all of Israel, and through Messiah Yeshua, with us and with all the nations who put their trust in you. And we thank you for covenantal life. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we declare to you, we want to be good and faithful to you too. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? And if you're standing by yourself, just move a little bit. So that you're not alone. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Join us next door for the Oneg. And don't forget your kids. <laughs>